Hey everyone, Libba here, welcoming you to a special extended episode for Halloween with our guest Matt House, who will guide us through the films of Alfred Hitchcock, such as Psycho, Vertigo, Rope, and other thrillers. We hope all of you have a safe and happy Halloween. Enjoy! Hey everyone, it is Vin again from the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Glenn, and today we have a return guest, Mr. Matt House, who joined us for a talk about probably the greatest story ever told, which of course is Star Wars. And he's going to come back and share some thoughts with us on more stuff about movies, because he is what you would call a movie aficionado. Is that right, Matt? I love movies. Why do you love movies? You know... When I was a kid, we had a Windows 95 computer. And back then, for some reason, I don't think they had really figured out the way that you sell a computer. They would just give you like this big binder full of CDs of free programs that you could just have on your computer. And two of them were, one of them was like a movie encyclopedia. So I got to see clips of like Charlie Chaplin movies and you know that you know that one where he's in like the the gears i don't know what movie that is but yeah, yeah just, i know, I know the one yeah, you're talking that about. one and godzilla and all these old movies that just kind of got me interested in it and then there was another one called 3d movie maker where you could have these very crude little 3d animated figures and it would give you like sets and camera angles and you could just make a little movie with it and you know we were poor so we didn't i didn't really read a lot my parents weren't readers themselves so even though i'm sure they would have loved it if i read it wasn't like the culture of the household we watched tv and we watched movies so that was just what i loved doing and i liked I like making up stories. I write movies too. So it's just something that I've always been interested in. That is very cool. And I, you know, as a side note, I think it's important for people to realize that the stock equipment that comes with some, with computers and things can sometimes be very valuable kids. And sometimes it's the best stuff you'll have for the computer. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what kind of childhood I would have if I was growing up today with like a cell phone that I could have just gone out and, I mean, I would have loved to have had a video camera, you know, like, even if you had one back then, it was very crude and you couldn't really edit the stuff because you didn't have the equipment to do that. You could really just shoot it and then just watch what you shot, which we did some of. But, you know, like now I would have programs to edit stuff. Yeah. And, and like you say, you, you can do it on your phone. The technology yeah. has certainly changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. But one thing that is still crucial is content and how to put together a movie well, how to tell a good story. And we talk a lot, uh, we have talked a lot on then again about movies. You know, we pull in the, the visual popular culture, but we haven't really talked about how you make or how you get a good movie or even how you can judge how a movie is. But you've got some things to say about that from one of the greats today. Yes, Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock is a, a filmmaker that I didn't get into until really like the past couple of years. I didn't I mean, I, I think I maybe saw Strangers on a Train in college. That was the only Hitchcock that I was ever really exposed to. And it's only been in the past like couple of years that I've like really, really gotten into it. And it's interesting to go back and look at that. You can see the influence of, I mean, not only conventions that he pioneered himself for the first time, but also just principles from the, from what, from the silent era that 
Hitchcock still adhered to that he learned in that era because he had been making movies basically since the industry really got going in the 20s. He had been in it. I'm sure he didn't get a start as a screenwriter, did he? Or did he? You know, it's, it's, it's funny. He went to school and was an engineer or he got a degree in engineering. And I don't think he ever really worked in that field. I mean, like, he did a little bit and then he quickly started doing advertising for some reason. I don't really know why he made that pivot, but he started doing advertising and he was also an artist and he, from advertising, like a, like a, like a visual artist, like yeah, yeah, drawing and painting things. Yeah. yeah. But commercially he, he did it as a job. He didn't necessarily do it as a way to express himself from advertising. He got a job making title cards for movies, you know, because back then they didn't have sound. So if you wanted to convey anything that needed to be spoken or exposition that wasn't easily just shown, you would just plop a title card. And, you know, it wasn't always just text on the screen. Sometimes there was like a little picture with it or, you know, it was, it was painted or drawn or something. He got a job doing that. And he kind of just bounced around to different jobs, working on scripts and stuff. He never really wanted to be a director, but they needed someone to direct a movie. And his boss just asked, hey, do you want to direct this movie? And he's like, I've never thought about directing a movie, but sure. And he just did. And apparently he was very good at it. And he just kept doing it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. For such a big figure, he, he was very unpretentious when the way that he spoke about himself, at least in the conversation that I'm basing a lot of this research on, which I, which I guess I haven't mentioned yet. So in 1962, this French filmmaker named Francois Truffaut, whose movies I couldn't tell you anything about, wanted to do a series of interviews with Hitchcock. I think they planned like a week long where they just met up from breakfast until dinner and even talked during lunch. And they just talked for hours through a translator about each one of his movies. And Truffaut came very prepared. He had done homework. He had a synopsis of every single one of Hitchcock's movies to date that he could reference and talk to. And they just went through each one movie by movie in order and just talked about them. And it's fascinating. So this, so the, the interview you're talking about though, the, well, the series of interviews is like days and days of just raw audio footage. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You, there's a, you can find recordings of it, but like, it's a little easier to read it because you know, you don't have to go through the tedium of the translator translating everything. Right. Um, right. Uh, and it's a book that it's just, called Hitchcock. It's very popular among film people, as you might imagine. And a lot of people credit it for rehabilitating Hitchcock's career as not just as an entertainer, but having him taken seriously a, a, as an artist. I kind of question if that's actually true. I think that his movies just stood... I, I don't know. I, I don't know that that book... I mean, it's great that it's a book that we have and we can hear all of his opinions about movie making, but I don't... I don't necessarily buy that it's the reason why we take him seriously, like well, some people have stated. Yeah, he was already Hitchcock. Yeah. They knew him and they knew his movies. Yeah. But he did, he did have a reputation among critics as being just a light entertainer that made kind of lowbrow movies. But what Hitchcock really felt is the true test of if your movie's good is what your audience thinks about it. He didn't really care so much what critics thought. I mean, you know, it's great to get critical praise because that means more people are going to go see your movie. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it becomes peer-reviewed in effect. Yeah, it yeah. feels good to get recognition from the people that are supposed to know what they're talking about, but very often it was those people that said the movie wasn't good, but then a bunch of people still went and saw the movie and said that they loved it. So that was really where he found his validation is from just what the audience thinks whenever they leave the theater. What does that mean his, his process was, if, there, if you can even put a 
you know, pin it down. I'm just going to go through just a bunch of things that, that he said that people maybe disagreed with him on or things that he had to insist upon to have it done his way. One of the things that he was very confident about is that it doesn't really matter how it feels when you're on set making the movie. It only matters the way it looks on the screen. And the people that worked with him said that he had just this uncanny ability to see the movie in his head before it was actually there. And that led to some kind of strange tensions on set. There's a particular scene in a movie, it's from the mid-40s called Notorious. I, I've never seen it. Have you ever seen it? I have not seen that one. Okay. Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant. It's kind of a spy movie where Ingrid Bergman's the protagonist, Cary Grant's a spy, and he recruits her to help in this espionage plot so that she can pretend to be in love with this guy so that they can get something from him. There's this scene, and these two characters are in love. There's this scene where they are, it's a very tight close-up shot on the two, on their faces, and they're having this kiss, and they walk across the room, but they stay in this tight shot, and they stay kind of kissing and sort of hanging on to each other, and they kept complaining that this just looks and feels weird. Why are, why are we doing this? Why are we shooting this this way? And he says, I don't care the way it feels. I only care about the way it looks on the camera. And if you watch that scene, it looks great. Nothing about it looks weird. It looks like you just believe it, but it must have looked weird. If you can imagine standing next to your partner and having your arms all over each other, but also having to walk across a room, <laughs> it, it just looks kind of strange. So they didn't get that, but he, he knew the way it was going to look. And it was really important for him that it looked that way. There are a lot of shots in Vertigo, if you'll remember, oh, where yeah. it's, just, it's just Jimmy Stewart looking at something. Which must have been, yeah, that, that must have been painful to shoot. Yeah, like, what do you tell the actor? Just, just look, and and he, he even look said, intently. yeah, look <laughs> intently. He, he he even said, this is a quote: the chief requisite for an actor is the ability to do nothing well, which is by no means easy, because it's not. And yeah, a lot of the really effective sequences in Vertigo are Jimmy Stewart looks at something, and then we see what he looks at, and that's it. And it's just that sort of basic building block of letting the character's eyes do a lot of the work that the actor may not understand when they're on set. And it's really not important that they do as long as they do nothing well. And uh, you know, I guess that is a difference of perspective in how each artist works in their medium, right? The actor is in their own body. They're doing things from their first person perspective and that's their art. Right. The director's yeah, and, art is to, as you say, as you know, as you and Hitchcock are saying, to put it on a screen for other people to look at. Right. And he, he wanted the camera to be very tight in a lot of the action in a way that a lot of the actors, just based on the other jobs that they had had, they just weren't used to. You know, the camera would, would very often show the entire body. And that's something that later drama gets a little closer. And we tend to think of comedy as showing the entire body. But Back then, it, those conventions weren't necessarily established. So it was in Hitchcock's movies that some of those conventions that you don't even think about, just like I mentioned that scene, they were kissing, it just looks good. Yeah. It, it never occurred to me that it must have been some unnatural thing that they were doing. I kind of touched on this a moment ago, but audience satisfaction is the most important thing to him. It's even more important than his own personal artistic satisfaction. And this approach has a commercial advantage for obvious reasons. You know, if 
if the audience is happy, then they're going to spend more money to see the movie. But he, he firmly felt that this was an artistic principle in and of itself. Like if he's not being primarily concerned with the audience, who is he supposed to care about? They're the people who are watching the movie. And he, he was also very capable of changing with the times and the conventions and the expectation of his audience in a way that's kind of hard to appreciate now because now all of his movies are old. Right. But if you compare like some of his work in the 50s to his first movie in the 60s was Psycho. Psycho is more sexually explicit than some of his, I mean, it, it's tame now, like all the movies are tame now, but it's more explicit than his other work. The opening scene of Psycho, if you'll remember, Janet Lee, the presumably the protagonist of the film, is introduced. She's having this sexual encounter with her lover on her lunch break. It's the middle of the afternoon. She's shown in a bra. That was just racy for a movie at the time. And Hitchcock hadn't ever been as forward with that as he had. And when asked about it, why did you make that change? She says, honestly, I felt like the younger audiences would have thought just the kissing and the holding each other would have been hokey. The times had changed, so he wanted his movies to change. This seems to be a conventional wisdom that Hollywood has never unlearned, that people don't like unhappy endings. Very often, they don't want a movie to be too downbeat. And he very firmly felt that audiences would perfectly accept an unhappy ending of a movie as long as it was sufficiently entertaining. If it felt like it was worth their time, they wouldn't <laughs> care if the movie was an unhappy ending. And, and that's a thing that some people still don't agree with. It's just interesting that that's just one of those arguments that I don't think is ever really settled because if you're you know if you have a commercial thing there's a bunch of money on the line you think an unhappy ending they're not going to like it it's going to lose money and that's just just not true well i mean it's, it's a difference again in in the consumer the consumer is not a monolith yeah you're going to have yeah. people that that have all sorts of different layers of complexity what they like what they don't like and you know i'm thinking of a couple of of my favorite movies right now that they their endings are quite unhappy or, or aren't even altogether wholesome, you know, like Casablanca. That's not a Hitchcock movie, but we wouldn't exactly say that's a happy ending. It's something a little more, you know, they don't end up together at the end of that movie. Right. And, and but, you, you don't, you don't even, there's not even really a conclusion, right? No, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, another quality that Hitchcock always wanted his movies to have is, is some quality of understatement. He just like love this theme. It's present in all of his movies and it's especially present in his best movies. He wanted to put ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. So even if he would have a story that involved espionage like Notorious that we just mentioned a moment ago, his main character in Notorious is not the spy, Cary Grant. It's Ingrid Bergman's character who is an ordinary person who's been sucked into this world. He always wants to focus on ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances and he wants the action to go from really small to really big. He says in the interview that he would never do like a Bond type movie where the spy is the main character or a gangster movie where a gangster is the, you know, the main character. It's just not the kind of movie he was interested in. On the other side of that, he also is not interested in slice of life or a banal drama. A good quote that he said is, uh, what is drama after all, but life with all the dull bits cut out? <laughs> yeah that, i mean that's that's pretty accurate <laughs> yeah like he wouldn't he wouldn't do death of a salesman as great of as great as a piece of work as that is he wouldn't do that it's just not the kind of movie that he would do this also extends to how he picks a project people were always trying to get him to make this gangster movie make this spy movie and that's just not what he was interested in he also he didn't feel the pressure to outdo his last project or to top himself 
like a lot of people feel. He would pick a project just, you know, he would think, this sounds like a fun movie to make. I'm going to make this movie. If you'll remember, he made Vertigo in 58, and then in 1960, he made Psycho. You know, Vertigo is a big movie, and Psycho is a very small movie. And he just picked it because he thought it would be a good movie to make. He, he, he had a long working relationship with, with Bergman, who always felt like she wanted to outdo her last movie. You know, I wanted to be bigger than the last one. I wanted to be a bigger part. And he would always tell her, go out and play a secretary. It might turn out to be a big picture about a little secretary. You know, you may not have delved this much into it, but by the time you get to, you know, Vertigo and Psycho, and you're talking about Hitchcock wanting to take on this movie or that movie, was his reputation such that he'd gotten to the point in the industry where he, I guess he could pick and choose, couldn't he? As a matter of fact, it was after Vertigo that he started producing his own movies. He started his own production company. Okay. So he had even more freedom just because it was his money at stake, so he could do more. It's interesting, even given that, he went from doing Vertigo to his first movie with Psycho on his own. And he spent very little money on it, $800,000. That's not a lot back then. It's not a lot now. And it made something like $15 million. He made it with a TV crew. Oh, I didn't just, know that. Yeah. It just, I mean, it's, it's almost like an indie movie by today's standards. It really is a small movie. You, you know, you, you're talking about how he puts the, the, the average person into this extraordinary circumstances it seems like he also is very very rooted in reality people who are boring go to these sort of things i was i was at a lecture once where it was a a, P, a phd psychologist i guess technically an md talking about psycho and he went through you know the analysis of the the character and he was like you know everything hitchcock put into this movie is spot on with psychoanalysis he didn't make anything up the guy said he must have read two or three psychology books doing that movie. I don't know if he did or not, but he said everything in that is spot on to the current academic medical standards of oh, what that's that personality yeah. is, of, of what the manifestations are, all this different stuff. Well, you know, in the book, he, he does talk about not specifically psycho and the um, psychoanalysis, but there were even some movies like as early as the 20s that he was reading Freud and trying to sort of incorporate that into the movie. So yeah, I think huh. whether whether conscious or not, I think by that point, the stuff was just so in his orbit of ideas that I, I think it couldn't help but show up in it. It could have been more rigorous than that. They didn't really talk about that much in the book. But um, the next thing that I want to talk about is is the way he felt about dialogue. You know, he, he learned to make movies during the silent era. You didn't have dialogue. And he, he stuck to those principles even after sound came out. He, he really felt like when sound came on, a lot of filmmakers got worse because their movies, he said, were pictures of people talking rather than compelling cinematic storytelling. He never wanted a line of dialogue to cover something that was an important detail. That was, you know, that's the camera's job. The right. dialogue is something secondary. He, he would even work out the scenario, the entire script and the story and the last thing he would add is the dialogue. That's interesting. I, I think it, it works too. Adaptations, a lot of, most of his movies are based on some story that, you know, you know, that they bought. He said that he would never adapt a great work of literature. A lot of people wanted him to make a War and Peace adaptation. He was not at all interested. He says, I'll never do that. It's someone else's accomplishment. It probably wouldn't even be good if I did it. He would rather pick a story that he would just read it once, something like a commercial story usually, something just pulpy, something not very heavy. He would read it once, he would find something cinematic in it that he liked, and then they would just run with it. He wouldn't go back to the story, he wouldn't reread it. 
He wouldn't make a lot of notes. It was just a very impulsive thing for him. And uh, so he, he wanted to use the source material as a kind of a clay rather than trying to make a faithful adaptation of whatever it was he was working with. And al almost any of his movies are based on something. None of them are something that he made from scratch. Right. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things, too, being the, the history person that I am. I can't remember a single example of Hitchcock doing a period piece. Everything is set very contemporaneously within his time, all of his works. Am I remembering that right? Uh, you know what? He actually has one or two, and he specifically said that he doesn't like to do those kinds of movies. He, 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 but he did do one or two and said they called them costume pictures back then which yeah. is kind of funny um <laughs> which i didn't know that term uh he said that, that that just wasn't really his forte he he did do a couple but it's just not what he's interested in so he once i think he got more independent he didn't really do anything like that right those yeah those do tend to be the the larger productions the the ones that the studio is looking to make a, a yeah. whole lot of money on like and i don't know if I think Rebecca was contemporary, but there are all there are also a lot of costumes in it, and and there was another one whose title I can't remember that, that that he called a costume picture, but he wasn't very happy with it. I'm sure you've heard the 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 term the MacGuffin. Oh yes. Okay. But he, so, well, he invented that, right? He didn't invent it. It was it's, it's actually a, a Scottish saying, just that he had just known, and he wasn't even the first person to really pioneer it, or, and it's really just a thing, and he gave it a name that everyone attributes to him. A really good example of a MacGuffin. Oh, so a MacGuffin is just an object, a plot device that is used to keep the audience's attention. And Hitchcock would use it only until they were sufficiently interested in his story. A really good example of a MacGuffin from not a Hitchcock movie is from Casablanca, The Letters of Transit. The thing about the MacGuffin, it's true of the MacGuffin in Casablanca and it's true of all the MacGuffin in Hitchcock movies is you don't really get a lot of details about what they are. You know, right. it's not, and he really feels like it's not important. He, he would very often only use the MacGuffin until about halfway into the movie. And then he would just kind of discard it once the audience is on board and, and they really don't care. And in fact, if you do make it more important, he felt very often the audience was kind of disappointed with the explanation that you gave to it. So it's better to sort of just kind of make it go away. They're not going to walk out of the movie thinking, well, what were the letters of transit? They don't care. He very firmly felt that way. In Psycho, the MacGuffin is the money. The money is the big important thing in the beginning of the movie, but by the end of it, you've kind of forgotten about the money. <laughs> yeah, there, there are other issues at stake. Yeah, you, you, you get, uh, yeah. Casting is something that he was very particular about. He always felt like you should cast a big star as your lead for the only reason that the audience is going to immediately care about that person and it's going to sell tickets, obviously. There's a commercial you know, part of it, too. But by 1960, when he was making Psycho, he did a really clever trick. He played with this expectation. He cast Janet Lee, a big star, as what, who is presumably the protagonist of the movie for the first, I think it's like 45 minutes. We follow her around, and we're all about her. And then she dies. She gets killed. Most directors wouldn't have done that. They would have cast a smaller actress as that part they wouldn't have spent 45 minutes on it they would have spent maybe 15 or 20 and you probably would have seen it coming more which is why he he cast janet lee a big star you won't see you're not expecting janet lee to die that quick into the movie so it was a shock so he it's interesting that he has this rule but knows when to subvert his own rule in a way that it's still in a way it's still sticking to the rule it's you're always trying to get the audience to 
wonder what happens next and to not see it coming. They're not going to see Janet Lee being murdered less than an hour into the movie coming. They're not going to see that coming. And they didn't. It was a shock. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine that because I'm sure she was, she was probably the headliner for the film too during the release. Casting wisdom would have said that Janet Lee should have played the sister. There's the sister that comes looking for her in the movie. We don't even remember the sister. We barely remember the sister, do we? Right. But conventional wisdom would have said Janet Lee plays the sister, but Hitchcock said, no, that's not what we're going to do. She's going to play this woman that gets killed in the very beginning. I want to I talk about villains, Hitchcock's villains. They are human, they are vulnerable, they are frightening, but they're also afraid. Very often they are put into situations where the camera will even make them the subject of the scene in a kind of a perverse way where we weirdly, we want to see them safe, safely out of their predicament. It's very strange. Like if you remember in Psycho, as soon as Norman Bates kills her, he's cleaning it up the crime scene. He's getting rid of the car. He's, and then the detective shows up asking questions. There, there's this long part of the movie where we're trying to see if Norman Bates is going to get caught. It's this, it's kind of a strange, it's a strange thing. There's to, another, to create sympathy for the villain. Yeah. I mean, uh, not, maybe not you know, over wring your hand sympathy, but it builds. You're interested. Yeah. You can't yeah. help but to, even if you're not consciously rooting for them, there's a part of you because they're the subject of the shot, you want to see them succeed because you're interested in what they're trying to do. There's a scene in Strangers on a Train where, um, have you seen that one? It has been so long ago that I, it doesn't even count. Okay, I think so, I watched that in high school on late night with a whole bunch of commercials. Okay, so <laughs> so um, the villain in that movie uh, meets the main character in the beginning, and they get chummy, and he's he has this crazy idea. You know what? We both have these people in our lives that we want to to be dead. We'd rather them be dead, but you couldn't kill them because if you killed them, then they would know it was you. We should swap murders. But he presents it as just like this joke that he's talking about. And then the villain shows up to the main character's hometown and kills his wife that he's trying to get divorced from. And he steal, he stole, when they met on the train, this lighter that, every, that, that has the main character's initials on it engraved. And he keeps it so that he can plant it if he needs to as kind of a way to blackmail him into doing... And there's this scene where he drops it into a sewer and he's reaching down into the sewer grate trying to get it and you don't know if he's going to be able to get it and there's this weird moment where you you want him to get it but he's the bad guy hitchcock said that we root for these villains in these moments because it's tantamount to admiring a job well done <laughs> and the more successful the villain the more successful the picture the more interesting the action of the movie is if the villain if the antagonist is sufficiently strong and compelling it makes your protagonist more strong and compelling did he ever have the antagonist win in the end i mean i know that's not necessarily tantamount to a happy ending but during the classic era of film noir and all that they had rules where the villain had to be punished right the, the hollywood codes it's, it's kind of a nuanced question because i kind of feel like Jimmy Stewart's character in Vertigo is kind of villainous and he he kind of yeah which <laughs> which which we can talk about I, I can't think of a movie right off the top of my head where the villain just out and out wins in a Hitchcock movie but I might have to revisit that question yeah. so the last thing that I wanted to talk about is it's kind of a it's kind of three things but it's the same thing it's subjective filmmaking suspense and his approach to realism and his concern with realism. They're all kind of the same thing. 
sort of. Now, def define your terms. Okay, our... I'll just kind of define them as I go. Hitchcock yeah, sure. felt that in order for an emotion to genuinely be felt by the audience, the camera's perspective must be subjective and inside of the action. Your goal should not be to objectively or realistically photograph an actual event because to do that does not invite the audience in to feel the emotions of the scene. Think about if you've ever seen a video on YouTube of people beating each other up. Everybody's seen a video of someone with a cell phone recording a fight. That's a realistic portrayal of the event, but notice how much that leaves out of what was going on at the time. If you wanted to make, if you wanted to have a fight in a movie, you wouldn't record it that way. You would record it in a subjective way that's supposed to make the audience feel the danger of the scene. And you can't do that if you're just realistically, objectively photographing it. You have to get subjective. You have to get inside of the action. And something about it has to be artificial in order for the audience to feel the very real feelings that is the subject of the scene. The subject of the scene is not just an event, it's the, the emotions. That's what he's concerned with. And the emotions are very real. So in, in a sense that a scene makes you feel an emotion that the character is feeling is in that sense that it's actually realistic. It's, it's concerned with realism because the emotions are real. And if you're not feeling the emotions, you're not, it's not what Hitchcock is wanting to do. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, he doesn't want a neutral observer. He, right. he, want, he wants the audience to be almost a participant. Right, yeah. And in fact, he does occasionally use objective shots, but he uses them very in a very calculated way and a very limited way. The movie might open with an objective shot of San Francisco, just right. to establish yeah. that we're Here's the house. Here's the street where they live. Yeah. Yeah. Or very often, he uses it as a way to make an emotional climax land. He will have the scene's action play out in a very subjective way, and then the climax of the scene, the camera will sometimes kind of go back. It'll kind of pull back, and we see things in a more objective way, in a way that lets the emotion kind of linger in the air. I'm, I'm thinking of, there's a scene in, at the end of Rope, have you seen Rope? No. Okay, no. well... Turns out I'm not a very good Hitchcock compatriot on this well, podcast. You, you, <laughs> you got to see Rope. You got to see Rope. Have you seen Rear Window? Yes. Okay, so there's, there's a scene in Rear Window where it's after the dog's been killed. Everyone in the courtyard is looking out and they're seeing this drama of this family who's lost the dog. They don't have any children. All they have is this dog and they're heartbroken. And everyone's at their window except for one person the villain, the guy who killed the dog. We cut to a shot of him just sitting in his apartment, smoking his cigarette. And the scene, most of the movie has been strictly from Jimmy Stewart's point of view, except for like the very beginning when we're panning around the courtyard. And then in that scene, it sort of just as a way to really make that moment land. He thinks it's a, this would be inappropriate to make the camera perspective a little more objective. Right. Because it just works. You know, it's, it's a matter of not that you can never make an objective scene. It's just normally when you shoot something objective, it drains it, it drains it of emotion. But occasionally when you deploy it the right way, it actually heightens the emotion and it makes the overall thing just slam more. You're right. You know, I, I love movies. I love live theater, but that live theater is very visceral because you're there. And, and, and if the actors are good, you can feel the emotion. But one of the things that live theater doesn't give you are those tight shots. Right. I mean, it, yeah. it sounds stupid, but 
your perspective is always going to be the seat that you're sitting in done, right. you know, forever for that entire play. Whereas movies allow the director like Hitchcock to do a lot of different things with perspective, whether it's objective, subjective, close shots, all that sort of thing that you're talking about. And that's one of the great things about about watching movies. And he just does it better than anybody else was seeming to do it at the time. He just he, he just knew how to lead your attention. And the most effective way Hitchcock felt of keeping the audience's attention is through a vehicle that he called suspense. Suspense that, you know, it, it wasn't a word that he invented, obviously, but suspense to Hitchcock is prolonging emotion or stretching out anticipation for the effect of getting the audience to pay attention and invest in the story. And notice I said emotion, I didn't say fear, which a lot of people think when you think of suspense, you think of fear. And most right. of the time, oftentimes Hitchcock was using fear as the emotion, but he very firmly felt that suspense has nothing to do with fear intrinsically. It's more general than that. You can have a, a scene where a character proposes to another character and will they say yes or not can arouse just as much suspense as a frightening situation can you know like that that sort of that that's what he means by suspense he, he 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 does think it's a more general it just so happens that the genre he works in that fear is usually what he's working with but it's it's more general than that and it's more basic than that too like the anticipation of the villain getting caught like you're afraid for the villain but that's not exactly what you're feeling there's something just a little more basic than that it's edge of the seat oh my gosh what's going to happen next is it's, he going to get the ladder before someone gets him <laughs> And, and suspense is not surprise. It's, it's not surprise at all. Surprise is, is, a, is an instant gratification. Suspense is prolonged. That's the whole point of suspense is prolonging that feeling and then having a climax. A, a really good example of suspense that he gives is two people sitting in a cafe. They're having a conversation about whatever. And then after a couple minutes go by and a bomb explodes. Well, that sure was surprising. But until the bomb exploded, you were just watching people talk. Now, if you know there's a bomb there at the beginning of the scene and the people are sitting there talking, it actually doesn't even matter what they're saying. It really doesn't matter. The only thing that's important is that the audience is aware that there's a bomb there and that's, that's what's giving the scene suspense. Then when the bomb explodes, it climaxes in a way that with surprise, you only just got that one moment. Whereas with the suspense, you got the feeling prolonged of the whole scene and that's what people want. I think you're right. That's that. I mean, that's the difference between throwing something on screen and filming stuff. And there were, you know, and we've talked, I think we mentioned this before back in the day, the twenties, the thirties, the forties, Hollywood was cranking out movies like crazy, right? Yeah, there, yeah. There, there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies made during that time period that no one today knows about cares about because they haven't had a lasting impact. And yet you get, someone who makes good movies that stand the test of time because they know what they're doing and you get someone like Hitchcock. As kind of a tangent based on what you just said is a really interesting story about Vertigo because Vertigo wasn't popular when it came out and there also wasn't home video at the time so because it didn't get popular there weren't a lot of prints available of the movie so after the movie came out from about 1960 until like the mid 70s it was kind of hard to even see that movie it was it was a collectible like film buff people would buy prints of it so that they could have their own copy of it because it was just so rare it was almost impossible to even see the movie it wasn't until it was 
I don't know if they would have called it a remaster, but they re-released it in the 70s. And that was when it became more available and more people actually saw it, which is kind of a weird story. It, like, it's weird to think that that movie just came out and it just wasn't available because of the technology of the time. Right. Well, all the kids listening now need to understand that that's how things used to be. A movie was released and that was it. Yeah, you had to go to a movie theater to see it until right. like the 80s. Or, you know, it was on TV at some point, sure. But yeah, it's kind of strange. Yeah. But I remember, I remember one of the oldest science fiction fan magazines that I had. You could order movies, not on VHS. You had to order them reel to reel. Wow. And it was a full page ad of all these, you know, obscure movies. And they were two, $300 because you were ordering prints, right? Yeah. Real to real stuff. It's nice that I can just uh, buy Vertigo on Amazon or just, right. um, okay. So I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I want to wrap up my point about yes. suspense. You're keeping us all in suspense, Matt. Good, 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 good. <laughs> One of the things that, that Hitchcock was very conscious of is that this sounds really basic, but that the audience needs to be able to follow the plot of what's going on. They should never feel confused. That's not what he wants an audience to feel. He wants them to, to be guessing about what's going to happen next, but he wants them to be in on everything as much as possible. Insofar as, you know, he might withhold something to keep their interest, but he doesn't want to, he never wants them to be confused about the action. If they're confused about the action, they actually won't feel the suspense. It won't work. I can't think of a better example in his body of work at this, at this point. The novel that Vertigo is based on, the people who wrote it, or hoping that Hitchcock would make it into a movie. So you've seen Vertigo. The, the basic plot of Vertigo is there's this guy, Jimmy Stewart, who has this traumatic event that happens to him where he's in the line of duty and another cop dies because of his failure to overcome this bout of dizziness that he's overcome with, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of sort of like a prologue of the story. And uh, this guy comes... That, this guy that he went to college with shows up and, and uh, wants to hire him to, to um, follow his wife around. I think my wife is possessed by a ghost, he says. I want you to follow my wife around. And he follows his wife around for a while, and then he falls in love with the guy's wife, which is weird. And they start spending a bunch of time together, and then she presumably kills herself. And because of his impairment, this dizziness that he has, he can't stop it from happening. So he feels the guilt that he felt at the beginning of the movie is now back in full force because he's let a second person die, this time someone that, that he was presumably in love with or he had this infatuation for. And he very quickly after the woman dies meets this other woman on the street that looks a lot like her and he, he shows up at her house, at her apartment. He follows her there and he just knocks on her door and... She really looks like her, but she also seems like a different person altogether. You know, she's different hair color, different look, different everything, but they're the same age and they, they look just alike. And he says, you know, I want to take you to dinner. You remind me of somebody. And she's kind of creeped out by him at first, but she agrees to go to dinner with him. And as soon as she closes the door to leave, she turns to the camera. It's, 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 it's the best moment in the movie, in my opinion. She turns to the camera. Most of the scene is shot from behind her and we're seeing Jimmy Stewart. And we're kind of going back and forth between them. And what we don't realize is that the movie suddenly goes from Jimmy Stewart being the main character to her being the main character. We don't realize it until he closes the door and leaves. She's in her apartment alone. And we're like, oh, where did Jimmy Stewart go? I thought he was the main character. Suddenly she's alone on screen. She turns to the camera and we see this flashback where it's revealed that 
the reason she looks so much like this lady is because she is this lady. There was this whole ruse that the husband had where he was getting her to pretend to be his wife and getting Jimmy Stewart to follow her around so that her murder would plausibly seem like a suicide because Jimmy Stewart would attest that she killed herself. You know, he was like, and in fact, it kind of seemed like it was his fault that she died. Uh, so they really pinned it on him. That's revealed to us, the audience, but not to Jimmy Stewart. Now, in the novel, it doesn't happen that way. It, it's not until the end of the film when Jimmy Stewart realizes what's true about her and what she's told him that the audience becomes aware of that. Hitchcock thought that that's all wrong. He, he wanted the audience to know as soon as that character, the real woman, so to speak, is introduced on the screen. He wanted the audience to know right then that she had this secret. And the effect that that has is that for the next, for the last 40 minutes of the movie, I mean, it's, it's a full act, 40 minutes. The audience knows this thing. What's Jimmy Stewart going to do when he finds out? And it's the most suspenseful <laughs> 40 minutes of any movie I've ever seen. And it's excruciating. That's the word excruciating, right? Yeah, it is. Excru it's not fear even. It's this weird feeling of guilt. It's really what made the movie. And everybody he was working on the movie with said that that's the wrong choice. The way it was in the novel is the right way to do it. And he felt so confidently about it. He stuck to his guns. And honestly, if he had left it the way it was in the book, I don't think that movie would be very good. We sure wouldn't be talking about it today. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I really don't think so. So he, so, I mean, that, he, he took it so seriously that that, that whole 40 minutes, I can't think of, a, of another movie that has a 40 minute long suspense sequence the way that that one does. It's just so, it's so satisfying. And then once, it, once he figures it out, there's a good like eight minutes from the time that he figures it out to the time that he actually does something about it. So there's this, there's like another little suspense sequence of, oh, he knows now, what's he gonna do? And he has this look in his eyes, like he's gonna do something really awful. And that's why he feels kind of like a villain in that moment. Well, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Because obviously, even if you, we've already, quote, spoiled the plot, that's not the point. It's not, yeah. If, <laughs> you if, will if, still if be could... able to watch this movie with 100% enjoyment. If anybody wants a list of Hitchcock movies to just go and just like, I don't know, like a greatest hits, Psycho's definitely one. Vertigo is another one. Rope is another one. Lifeboat is a surprisingly good one that I don't think anybody ever talks about. So, th so those are four movies. If you just want to try some Hitchcock, those are four movies that you can just go watch. Good oh, movies. Last question. What's your personal favorite? Oh, Vertigo, hands down. I don't know. Maybe it's not hands down. I also like Rope a lot. You, know, you uh, can only pick one, man. Okay. If I can only pick rule. one, it's, it's Vertigo. Okay. The rule that I just made up. <laughs> it's Vertigo then. <laughs> that is... Unfortunately, all the time we've got, Matt, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you Always for having me. Always a pleasure. Me. Our resident movie expert, Matt House, ladies and gentlemen. Folks, thank you for tuning in. We will see you again uh, next time on Then Again. In the meantime, stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review if you haven't already. We also hope to see you in the chat during our weekly live streams on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern and our members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Become a digital member for as low as $3 a month or $35 a year at www.negahc.org member.